Uh, well, my name is Brand. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Good to be with you guys this morning. Normally, I'm the one who's preaching here, but this morning uh, we've got a, a special guest with us. His name's Scott Sterner. Scott is a friend and mentor of Aaron and I. Um, as you may or may not know, uh, River City is a part, the denomination that we're a part of is the Evangelical Free Church of America. And so uh, Scott, uh, besides being our friend and mentor, Scott's also the church multiplication director for the EFCA uh, in the Forest Lakes region. And basically, that means that Scott's uh, in charge of helping churches get Planted and helping raise up and train up uh, people to plant churches so that more and more people can know the gospel and know Jesus and live in light of him. And so uh, we're really thankful to have Scott coming this morning. If you've been with us, we've been studying the gospel of Matthew over the course of this past year, and uh, Scott is graciously just picking up where we left off, and so he's going to be joining us this morning. And so I just want to invite Scott up and just uh, really grateful for him this morning. Good to have you. Very good. Well, hey, it's awesome to be with you. Um, just really Love Brandon and Hannah, Aaron and Becky, their families, and uh, vicariously through them, love you all. We've prayed for you as a church, have enjoyed meeting you, and just thankful for the work that God is doing here. And so I'm excited to, uh, to come and bring the word uh, to you today. So as, as Brandon said, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, and so I get to jump in here. We're going to be in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20, so if you have a Bible or a device you want to Start getting there. You can. This, in this gospel today, we're going to be approaching a major turning point in the gospel of Matthew. So as we prepare to read, and as I'm going to read and you're going to read along with me, we're going to be thinking about a few things. First, in case you aren't aware, I want you to know that the gospel of Matthew is one of four historic accounts in the New Testament, so the second half of the Bible, that really focuses in on the life of Jesus Christ. Now, one thing that we should all keep in mind when we're reading a gospel like Matthew is that you all, uh, generally speaking, most all of you have way more information about Jesus than the original audience. And so we need to remind ourselves that the original audience, these disciples and the people of that day, they had no idea that the cross was coming. In other words, they had this incomplete understanding of who Jesus was and what his purpose was on earth. And so with this in mind, we're going to observe again a major turning point in the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is. And this understanding is going to then turn the book of Matthew on a clearer path to the cross and the implications of the cross for the people of God. So uh, starting at verse 13, again, Matthew 16, you can just follow along as I read. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful word from you. 
this word that is uh, really for the purpose of opening our eyes to see and understand who you are more fully. And so I pray now, Lord, that you might soften and open our hearts, uh, bring our attention spans together for just these few moments that, that, Father, that you might really minister deeply into the point of need that we all are experiencing and living out in our day-to-day life. So we just ask you to do what only you can do through this, your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we prepare to reflect on these verses a little more, I want to give you a little more information about the setting. So where this happened, you see, Jesus, he had been ministering right around the Sea of Galilee, right in the heart of the Jewish territory of the day. But everywhere he went with his disciples, large crowds would follow. Um, But from the first few verses of of this section today, we saw that Jesus took his disciples to the Gentile city of Caesarea Philippi. And this was 25 miles north of where he'd previously been. So it had been quite a hike for those walking. And, uh, and, And this took him to the very outskirts of Jewish territory. Here Jesus would have been much less recognized, and it would have afforded him the ability to just hang out more privately with his disciples. Uh, But there's more to the location than simply uh, this idea that he was escaping large crowds. You see, Caesarea Philippi was known as the center of spiritual activity in the Roman Empire. You see, the city was named after Caesar, the regional leader, uh, uh, Herod Philip, uh, named this city uh, after Caesar in honor of the emperor, but he also, if you notice, enshrined his own name alongside, hence the two names, Caesarea Philippi, okay? Now, the previous name of the city before it was renamed was Panias, which was named after the Greek god Pan, who was half human, half goat, and known as the god of nature. And so, in honor of Pan, there was this large white marble temple built And it was the center for all kinds of pagan worship. And so it's in that context, the capital of pagan spirituality, that Jesus had this conversation with his disciples. So with that in mind, let's jump back into the text. Look with me again at verses 13 and 14. He asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, what's helpful to understand about Jewish culture is that it's common for the prophetic mantle to be passed from one prophet to another. So, from the prophet Elijah back in the Old Testament, when he was taken up to the heavens, they say the spirit of Elijah passed on to Elisha. And and back in Matthew 14, you may remember that Herod, who executed John the Baptist, he feared that Jesus had come as a resurrected version of John the Baptist. Now, to be clear, the Jews did not believe in reincarnation. So the idea here was more of a succession of the role of responsibility. So the speculation regarding Jesus that he was somehow assuming the role of a previous prophet, the main point was this. The audience, which was biblically literate, they they were at a loss to who Jesus was, and yet they thought he was perhaps carrying the mantle of another. Uh, Nonetheless, his identity, his true identity, was still a mystery to the people. 
Now, if you think about it, there are certainly some parallels between the original audience and the average person, say, here in Dubuque, Iowa. I'm sure if you went out on the street and you asked people who Jesus was, most would know who he was. They would give a favorable answer regarding his identity. But if you drilled down with them into the finer points of his identity and purpose, you'd likely discover a lot of variety, a lack of, lack of clarity or uniform understanding. Um, in, a, in a poll that the Barna Research Group took back in 2015, so he polled people in the United States asking them who they thought Jesus was. And 92% of Americans agreed that Jesus really existed. Okay, so that's generally accepted that he lived and was here on earth. Uh, but there's a lot of conflicted responses on whether or not he was sinless, right? So people don't agree on that. Uh, 62% of Americans said that, uh, that they've made some kind of commitment to Jesus, okay? But most are conflicted on whether it's good works or Jesus that gets you to heaven. And so there's still this general religiosity. There's this general knowledge of Jesus. But the finer points of his ministry and purpose are largely a mystery to most people. And so there are definitely some parallels between the original audience and our experience today. But back to our text now, let's see what Jesus does, because he's going to turn that same question towards his disciples, starting in verse 15. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And now we come to one of the first very, very important historic moments in the text. Peter declares what has become his famous confession to Jesus. And Christian theologians have called this the Petrine Confession. Because Peter declares, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, the risk that we have here is to underestimate the significance of this moment. Because as I said earlier... Uh, most of us, or many of us, I should say, have read the Gospels before or have attended an Easter service or have heard sermons or lessons about Jesus. But what needs to land on us is that nowhere in human history up to this point had human lips ever spoken the words that Peter spoke. Nowhere had this me uh, message of clarity regarding Jesus' identity been understood. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And so to clarify the significance, let's look at the first claim. You're the Messiah. Now, for those less familiar with the Bible, it's helpful to know that the Jesus people uh, saw the Messiah as, as this one who was prophesied of in the Old Testament, who would come to rescue the people, uh, the Jewish people from oppression and, and, and to usher in the peace, the, the rule and the reign of Israel. And so Peter first exclaimed that Jesus was the messianic hope of Israel. But he went even further when he said, but he's also the son of God. Now, in our understanding of the Jewish worldview in that day, there was no expectation that the Messiah would actually be divinity. And so it was a radical concept when, G when Peter was proposing through this statement that, you know, that Jesus was also the son of the living God. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible and you've tracked with this series, you may remember back in Matthew 3 that during the baptism of Jesus, God spoke 
And he declared, this is my beloved son. Okay? But what we need to see is that historically, since that moment, it had never been articulated, this idea of his divinity, and definitely never articulated by the lips of men. Now, if you think that I'm overstating the significance of Peter's exclamation, I want you to think about Jesus' response in verse 17, because this is what he says. Blessed are you. Okay, that's a, that's a statement of, uh, you know, that's a strong statement of exclamation. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And why is it that Jesus was so delighted? Well, quite simply, it was because he saw that God the Father had been at work in Peter. Uh, you see, because just a few chapters before, in, verse, in chapter 14, Peter was rebuked by Jesus as one with little faith. But now he stood before Jesus, speaking with bold clarity that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So Jesus knew Peter's understanding. It couldn't have come from him. This could have only come from the work of the Father in his life. Now, I don't know how many of you have had the privilege of seeing hearts transformed by God. I think many of you probably have. You, you're probably here for the very purpose that God has, has reached you or is, is at work in your life. Um, I recently heard a story of one of the new churches uh, that, that I'm working with, where a successful businessman whose marriage was falling apart, who was far from God, he, he, you know, he came to the end of himself, and he, he'd heard of this new church in the community. So being at the lowest of lows, he thought, what could it hurt to just go and give it a shot? And so he, he took the risk of, of entering this church facility, and what he found there was a welcoming and loving community and a pastor who communicated God's word in such a way that was meaningful, that, that showed the grace of God. And he eventually got the courage up to, to share, you know, my life is a mess. My marriage is falling apart. And, and he ended up hearing the gospel and coming to faith in Christ. And since then, his wife came to Christ and his family is now attending this church and, and their lives that were going in this direction now turning and going in a radically different direction. Uh, their lives, their marriage, their family, it's being rebuilt and renewed by the gospel. And in response to this and in the stories like this, Jesus says, blessed are you. Blessed are you, new and growing believer, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by our Father who is in heaven. And so it was clear to God, and it was clear to Jesus in that moment that his father had been working in the heart of Peter. And so Jesus was overjoyed. Now, now that Jesus' identity has been revealed through the confession of Peter, we're going to take two additional important steps towards understanding historically significant observations, okay? And so the Next two observations are this. Observation one is we're going to learn the purpose of Jesus to build the church. And observation two is this. The position of Peter and the power of the keys. Okay? So let's look first at the purpose of Jesus to build the church. And we see this first statement in the second half of verse 18. This is what it says. I will, this is Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, or hell, 
will not overcome it. Now, what Jesus is saying first and foremost is quite simply this. I'm going to build the church. Okay, it's not too tricky there. Now, what's interesting is that this is the first time, again, another first in Scripture, where we see Jesus use this word church. Now, the original Greek word that he spoke in that moment was ecclesia, which means assembly. So Jesus is saying that I am building and I will build my assembly, my people. And so what we need to understand here is that all of Scripture is pointing to this same outcome, that God is preparing a people for himself. And so in many ways, Jesus is restating a purpose that has been clear from the beginning of Scripture. And so uh, we see the fulfillment of this assembly, and we're going to see it in the future because there's a prophecy of things to come when Jesus returns to earth one day, to establish his kingdom here on earth. And Revelation 21.3 tells us what that moment's going to be like. God's dwelling place is now among the people, the assembly. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So Jesus is saying to his disciples that he's building the church, that he is preparing the people of God. But Jesus makes another truth claim in this statement. He says, I'm going to build the church and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. Now, there's a few ways that we can look at this. One is that the gates of Hades represents the attack of the enemy. Okay, there is a devil. The Bible talks about this that's that's plotting against the church and against the people of God. And this is certainly consistent with what you can read in chapters like Ephesians 6, where we learn that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and spiritual powers of the heavenly realms. So in other words, to be a church on mission is to face spiritual warfare against the enemy Satan. Now, to give this extra meaning, I want to remind you that Jesus is delivering this message in Caesarea Philippi, the capital of pagan spirituality. So as you can see, there is a ton of meaning and significance to this statement. And so it's against that backdrop that he makes the claim that the entrance of hell is not going to overcome the church. It's not going to overcome the people of God. And one other meaning to the gates of Hades is this, that that it represented the place that one would pass uh, mythologically and in the culture that one would pass from life into death. And so we can see two meanings in this phrase. Meaning one, the church will overcome the power of Satan and the spiritual realm. And two, that the church will overcome the power of sin and death in the lives of the people of God. So to apply this to you, River City Church, what Jesus is saying is that he is building River City Church. And that the power of Satan and sin, though it be against you, though it may feel both subtle and at times overwhelming, it cannot overcome you. Now, I'm by no means saying that this passage is speaking about the enduring nature of the individual local church. After all, we know 
that most of the original churches planted in the New Testament no longer exist. But what we know is that those churches planted churches, who planted churches, who planted churches, which are now being used of God to spread the Christian gospel to the very ends of the earth. Point being, every universe or every local church, every individual church, including River City Church, is part of God's universal church, a church which Jesus promised can be uh, trusted and, and, and his words can be trusted that he will build this church and that it cannot be overcome by the gates of hell. And so to, to recap, as members of a young church that was planted just a few years ago here in Dubuque, according to this passage, you're going to have the opportunity to observe two things as you continue to establish yourself in this community. The first observation is, again, God's building you, okay? So, so you don't build the church. Uh, Brandon doesn't build the church. Aaron doesn't build the church. Jesus builds the church. So, so just so you aren't mistaken, he's the one who's doing the work here, okay? So we conclude, no matter how strong our systems or nice our buildings, you guys have a beautiful building here, no matter how great you're preaching, Jesus is the only one who gets the credit, Okay, If there's anything fruitful that happens in this place, it's ultimately the work of God working in and through you to advance his plans and his purposes here in Dubuque. Now, the second observation that we can make based on the text is that God is using you, River City Church, to turn back the work of sin and Satan in Dubuque. So we can safely conclude that for you to establish yourself here in Dubuque, into Dubuque, in Dubuque is to engage in a spiritual battle. And, and so you must pray. And you must not get surprised when you face hardship and opposition. Why? Because Jesus promised that no matter the opposition you feel, at the end of the day, though it is coming you can rest assured that the church of God will overcome the power of evil and death. So take heart this morning, knowing that Jesus is going to do it. And he's going to do it through the church. Now, to get very practical, in that Barna poll that I cited earlier regarding the culture's view of Jesus, what's very interesting is that as you look at the data more clearly based on age demographic, the younger the generation, the more likely they are to embrace a secular, skewed view of who Jesus is. In other words, our culture is growing increasingly secular, which means that the message we bring will be less and less acceptable to the world around us. And so it's no wonder that the landscape of church planting has changed. 20 years ago, it wasn't uncommon to see a new church to come to a community, send out a bunch of mailers to all the neighborhoods, and instantly grow to a few hundred people. But those days are really long gone. Church planting is now a slower work that requires slow and steady faithfulness to bring the gospel to the relationships in our various spheres of influence. In other words, Christianity, it's really no longer a come and see religion. To see the growth in the church, we must be faithful to go and tell. 
to live out our faith among our neighbors and coworkers and, and fellow students. And, and so we mustn't let ourselves get discouraged when we see that the soil is hard before us. And why is that? Well, because we've been reminded some good news this morning. Jesus is building his church. So our primary job is to faithfully live on mission with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to leave the rest to Jesus. And this is all we can do. This is all Jesus asks us to do. So we've seen the purpose of Jesus to build the church. And now let's look at the position of Peter and the power of the keys, okay? Let's look first at verse 18 in full. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, it's worth noting that Peter, who was known as Simon up to this point, was now given a new name by Jesus. And that name was Petros, or Peter, which means rock. So he's saying, Peter, your new name, well, Simon, he's saying, Simon, your new name is now rock. And what was the position of Peter? It was that he would be the rock upon which Jesus would build his church. Now, there are some faith traditions uh, who see these words and in these words that Peter is being given this enduring position of authority by Jesus. And in these traditions, they see this text saying that Peter is now the father of the church. And as a man with great authority, whose enduring leadership is a pillar, uh, it will become the, that pillar, that rock upon which the rest of the church will be built. But to somehow enshrine Peter in this way, it doesn't really make sense with what we see of Peter throughout the rest of Scripture. You see, we see just a few verses later that Jesus rebukes Peter, calling him the devil as he says, Get behind me, Satan. Before Jesus is crucified, we see Peter deny Jesus three times. In the early church, Peter rebu- or Paul rebukes Peter for allowing legalism to seep into the church. And from Acts 12, which is the story of the history of the church forward, um, we see Peter fade into obscurity. We even know from history that he's actually not the, the enduring leader of the church in Jerusalem. It's instead James. And so there's no evidence here that Jesus was giving Peter an enduring position as father of the church with his phrase here. So what was Jesus saying in verse 18 when he renamed Simon as Peter, the rock upon which the church will be built? Well, to fully understand the significance, let's go just a little bit deeper and see what Jesus says to Peter in verse 19. He says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Jesus calls Peter to be the rock upon which the church will be built, and he tells him that he will give Peter the keys by which people will be bound and loosed, ultimately, in heaven. So what in the world? I mean, this is pretty crazy. This is a strong statement that Jesus is making here. Well, I think to answer this question, we have to go to Acts 2. And you can turn there or just follow along. I'm only going to share a couple of verses from here. But again, Acts is the story of the history of the starting of the church. And in Acts 2, Peter preaches the first sermon ever given to the church. 
And this follows the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the Jews gathered there in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And after this miracle occurs, we see in that whole section, verses 14 through 41, that Peter delivers a beautiful sermon, okay? It traces the story of the gospel from the Old Testament all the way to the person and work of Jesus. And in verse 38, we read Peter, okay, Peter, the rock, giving this appeal to the crowd. He says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And after sharing this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what do we learn in verse 41? Awesome moment here. This is what it says. Those who accepted his message, Peter's message, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, I don't know about you, but outside of the resurrection of Christ and maybe a few other things, this is one of those scenes in the Bible that I would have just loved to observe in person, right? The Holy Spirit's poured out on the people. Peter preaches the gospel, and the church is born. And it grows from from 12 to 3,000 in number. I mean, what an awesome moment that would have been to see. So I believe that that the event at Pentecost answers the question we're asking, namely, how is Peter the rock, and what is the meaning behind the power of the keys? You see, Peter was the rock because he was the one to preach the first sermon that would lead to the establishing of the first church in Jerusalem. And, And this event also illustrated Peter using the power of the keys as he preached the gospel message to the people. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the key, right? It is is the key that unlocks the door to the human heart, releasing it from being bound by the power of sin and death and freeing it to new life and hope in Jesus. So when Jesus commissioned Peter in this way, I believe he was pointing to his role to being used by God to preach the gospel and establish the first church in Jerusalem. And you see, once we understand this, then we can see that every one of us who claims to be a Christian, in this sense, we now hold the keys of the kingdom. Every one of us are stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And according to Romans 1.6, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, as we land the plane on this message, I want to get very practical, recognizing that there are three kinds of people in this room, okay? There are those who have never placed their trust in Christ, those who are discouraged in their faith because of a lack of fruitfulness, or those who are proud yet to recognize that they're powerless to build the church, okay? So first, to those without faith... I want to remind you of Peter's confession. In verse 16, he spoke these words. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. With these words, he was putting his faith in God as Savior, in Jesus as his Savior, recognizing that Jesus alone had the power to save. He was the Messiah, the Savior. A power which was on full display on the cross when Jesus 
died the death we deserve for sin in order to rise from the dead, crushing the power of sin once and for all. And so if you're yet to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, then today you can join Peter in his moment of revelation, in his confession as you say to Christ, Christ be my Savior, the Son of the living God. Now, the next kind of person here is those who are discouraged over the lack of fruitfulness in your life. And I think all of us can identify with this at times. And I want want you to reflect on what we learned about Peter this morning. He was a man with a great calling, I mean, an amazing calling. And yet he was also a man who often lacked faith, who denied Christ, and who faded into historic obscurity. Now, why should this encourage us? Well, I think it's, it, it's because it illustrates for us how God uses weak and broken people like Peter to build his church. Now, again, I'm not denying that Peter had a unique role in the church. I think we can all identify, however, with this idea that his life was a living illustration of how God loves to use weak people for his eternal purposes. And this is beautifully spoken by Paul to the church in Corinth as he wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power might rest on me. So, take heart this morning. This fallen, broken world is now Christ's world. It is the theater of his redemption. It is the place of his mission over which he has total authority for the accomplishing of his saving work. And God loves to use the weak and frail people of the world to shame the strong and powerful. So take heart if you're discouraged this morning. Rest in the Father knowing that if you feel weak, And inadequate, you're exactly where you need to be in order to most glorify the work of God to build his church. And finally, to the proud who are trying to find their identity in their own hard work and performance, I want to tell you about a great preacher by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was living in Wales. And he tells the story of a time when he was at a gathering of a group of older ministers who were discussing a young minister in the community with remarkable preaching gifts. And this young preacher, he was famous among the people, and there was a real hope that God would use him to renew and build up the church. The ministers were all hopeful until one of them spoke up saying these words. Well, all well and good, but you know, I don't think he's been humbled yet. And following this statement, Jones said the other ministers looked very grim. It was in that moment that something landed on Jones that would change his life and his ministry from that day forward. He realized in that moment 
that unless something comes into your life to break you of self-righteousness and pride, you may say you believe the gospel of grace, but the penny hasn't dropped. You aren't yet a sign of the gospel yourself. You don't have the truth of Peter alive within you. You aren't a strength-out-of-weakness person. God may need to bring you low before he can truly use you to build his church. And with that challenge, let's pray. Father, I want to pray for those specific people that I spoke of just now and that your word just spoke to so powerfully today. I pray, Father, that the confession of Peter would be the confession of every person in this room, be it a mature um, person who's walked with you for a long time or someone who for the first time today is saying, yes, I believe. And I pray, Father, that that would be true of all of us today. And I pray, too, that there would be a deep and profound humbling and encouragement that would happen in this place as we recognize the fact that you build the church. And as we're encouraged by the fact that no matter what Satan throws at us, we should not be surprised, but really run to you as the sustainer, as the author of our faith, as the one who, for the joy set before us, endured the cross, and before you endured the cross, that we might take up that cross as well. And Father, I pray that in our humility as we approach and, and, and process this reality, Father, that you might just encourage us today that to be low is to be made ready for you to be made much of. And so, Father, we pray that this point forward, as you continue to do your work here in this community, that there might just be a humble air of dependence upon you as we seek to bring the light of the gospel to Dubuque and to this region and to ultimately the very ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.